Welcome to Writer's Radio. I'm Carol Harmon, introducing a three-part series, Dead and Alive, Being with Ancestors. Lisa Weil of Montreal, Canada, is the founding editor of the online literary journal Dark Matter, Women Witnessing. The journal's mandate states, Dark Matter publishes writing and visual art created in response to an age of massive species loss and ecological collapse. It is a home for dreams, visions, and communications with the non-human world, especially those with messages for how we might begin to heal our broken relationship to the earth. One of the features of Dark Matter is the invitation Lisa extends to authors of each issue to join in a collaborative conversation about what they have written. In this initial Writer's Radio episode, such a conversation launches the series. Please join Lisa Weil in conversation with authors from Dead and Alive, Being with Ancestors, Part 3. Jillian Goslinga, former cultural anthropologist and filmmaker who lives in the Verde Valley of Arizona. Sharon English, author and teacher of creative writing who shares time between Toronto and a farm in rural Nova Scotia. Cynthia Travis, writer and photographer who lives on the Mendocino Coast in California. Carol Harmon, writer, photographer, and co-producer of Writers Radio, who lives on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Lisa Weil begins the conversation. Our original idea for being with ancestors was really about honoring and grieving and being with beings we had lost, both human and non-human. And the question of extinction was, of course, there, and how to be with beings who've gone extinct. What happened in the second issue, it's so interesting, was, and of course, it, it, it was inevitable because most of the people writing for Dark Matter are white settler people with those lit lineages. So starting with the second issue, we had people looking at um, trauma, inherited trauma, and trauma that they were that they or their ancestors had inflicted, and at the whole legacy of colonialism. Part three is both in this issue. There are two threads that come together in almost every piece. The sub-theme of this issue is also about our relationship as humans to the non-human world. Yes. And I actually had a passage I wanted to read just to start off the whole conversation. I just came across this. It was from part one, and I thought I would maybe just read it as an opening to our conversation. It's just so beautiful. It's from Azul Tomei, who, when she started to write about the ancestors, immediately this came out. Praising the rooted standing ones and all the ones who have gone extinct. I am sitting on the ancestors' bones and on death seedlings. The vultures are mentoring me to pay attention. 
With a racing heart and with tiny black ants investigating the laptop, I type like a apocalyptic raindrops. I can hear far below a river enthusiastically chewing at the gorge. Perhaps she longs for an ancestral song that is deeply buried down there. My head spins within the deep time of it all. I just wish to lie down in good company, ears to the soil of the matter. That way she evokes deep time and is so entangled in her, and you know, it, it is very much how I felt about all the writing in this issue that we were all, and you were all very entangled in that way. And there was a sense of deep time, of going back to deep time ancestors. And I want to just quote one other thing she said because she had a meditation on extinction and the grief she felt about it. And what she came to understand, she said, as she just surrendered to her grief about the extinction, she said, I was, if I was to stay devoted to whom I belong, to our living earth, if I was to keep on keeping on with reverence, I would have to deepen and widen my person. I was summoned to support and passage the death and birth of a new relationship with being alive as a human. Jillian Guzlinga responds. I would say it's not just the writing. It's the dialogue that I'm having with the you know five of you and the other authors. And it's, it's in the way that Dark Matter Woman Witnessing stages the conversations between authors. Also, you're in Kristen's deep editorial um, involvement with my process. It's actually in the community of dark matter authors. I think it's in the collective uh, experience of writing for dark matter that I find that repair of my own goals. <laughs> um, and I'm very grateful for that. And I see it as part and parcel, you know, like it's, that's the power of this journal. Okay. I've published in other places and I've never had this experience. <laughs> You know, feeling like I'm entering into a field mm. that is like that relationship of, you know, what you just said, the, the relationship of rediscovering the ways in which I am alive. Sharon English comments. Just chiming in in agreement with Jillian that, that the journal has been really important for holding a certain space that... Um, or a field, as you called it, and um, for especially for other ways of knowing. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I've contributed a few things to the journal over the years that I would never have felt I had a place for or even would write down if it were not for that invitation that the journal makes by holding that space and uh, affirming the importance of other ways of knowing, um, be they dreams or uh, our spiritual relationships. And um, so I think that's that's the, the being alive in a different way that the journal is um, inviting is, is, is inviting us to be. And 
Um, this piece with, you know, that I co-wrote with Sharon on, on Barry Lopez and, and the, our experience of ancestor, personal ancestors and oak ancestors, I, that would have been absolutely inconceivable for me to write that um, without this context, without a sense of support for following these signs and, and that this is, this is important work to be doing. And so when I, when we put that together and then I see the other pieces in the journal, you know, I, I read Cynthia's story about making amends, like, and which is such an incredible story. This, this then nourishes the work to go, to go further. And, uh, it's been really important for me to, to have this community, uh, over the years. Well, thank you. That's wonderful to hear. No doubt, because there's no other journal that has been created because the person who founded it was desperate to have community. <laughs> That's why it wasn't enough for me to just, you know, I wanted to have conversations with the contributors. Mm -hmm. Or just you could say it's a kind of loneliness that called it into being. Cynthia Travis now reads from her essay, River of Kin. River of Kin. In 1939, for $50,000, my grandfather purchased 5,000 acres of raw land along the Colorado River in Blythe, California where Arizona begins and the river bends south towards Mexico. The land my grandfather bought was known as swamp and overflow land, reclaimed by local farmers through a system of levees constructed by dynamiting the riverbanks and throwing in pilings and mesh to block debris in order to redirect the river's flow into a narrow, straightened course. In 1935, Hoover Dam had been completed about 200 miles upriver, and the wild Colorado was permanently subdued. These days, we understand swamp and overflow to mean wetlands and marshes, meanders and oxbows, rich in the wildlife and water-nourishing biome of a natural river. But my grandfather and father were in a hurry. They weren't thinking about the health of the river or the longevity of the soil. They wanted a place for German Jews to escape to, where they could grow food to feed their families. And they wanted a place to make money. For the 60-plus years of my family's tenure in the desert of eastern California, on the banks of the Colorado River, the story of the place began with us. The land and the river were props in a bleak and lifeless landscape. But desolation can be deceiving. Places that seem empty in the eyes of a stranger are actually brimming with complexity. Standing on the riverbank on the land that was briefly ours, 
The view to the east is silent. It belongs to the Colorado River Indian tribes, an alliance of people from ancient riverine cultures who have thrived in the area for thousands of years, primarily Mojave, the water people. The people who settled on the reservation were survivors of sickness and slaughter whose forebears had once thrived for a hundred miles up and down the river. They must have watched in horror as my family strung chains between tractors and pulled down the cottonwoods and the willows, killed the rattlesnakes, drove out coyotes, mountain lions, foxes, raccoons, pheasants, and beavers. The land was level. The river grew quiet. Just past the ranch, on the mesa at the northwest edge of the Palo Verde Valley, are the mysterious intaglios created by prehistoric human people. It's said that the rock drawings tell the Yuma creation myths. One of the intaglios depicts a man nearly 200 feet tall, standing next to a mountain lion, or perhaps a coyote, and a figure with a spear aimed at fish that swim at his feet. The intaglios can best be seen from above, far away. They're visible to birds and journeying humans who traverse the sky to read the messages tattooed on Earth's wide arms. Maybe this is how the dead and the land watch over the place to protect its meaning. My father was enamored of the Green Revolution, which advocated mechanized farming and monocrops fed with fertilizers, weed killers, and pesticides. He thought it would solve world hunger. These days, the agricultural runoff, laden with chemicals and salt, still trickles into Mexico, about 90 miles south. The water is undrinkable and can barely be used for agriculture. But the real damage can't be seen. The free flow of water affects wind and therefore weather. In earlier times, as now, the pace of currents that slowed at the end of summer or hurtled seaward in spring would move nutrients in ways that aquatic and riverine plants depended on. Tender shoots appeared at just the right time for wobbly-legged baby deer. Aquatic plants protected fish eggs and tadpoles, and overhanging branches of riverine plants kept the water cool for all the selves that depended on a consistent range of temperature. My father and his partners added a feedlot and a dehydrator that pressed alfalfa into pellets to export to Japan to feed cattle there. In its heyday, the feedlot held 40,000 cattle packed together in its fetid rectangles. They arrived in boxcars and were herded with electric prods into a narrow chute whose iron bars held them fast 
as they were castrated and their horns trimmed while they were being inoculated, branded, and tagged, all without anesthesia. The memory scent of burning fur and skin, the sound of their hooves sliding beneath them as they struggled to gain purchase in the gravelly dust, their snorts of terror as they struggled and writhed, asked me to consider how it is that my family came to torture cattle so we could sell and eat them. The Mojave were Pipa Aha Macau, the people along the river instructed by their creator to protect it. They knew themselves as dreamers, as the people of the water who had settled in that valley at least as far back as 1150 AD. They traded with tribes as far away as the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific coast and could run an easy hundred miles a day at a leisurely jog through the desert heat. They believed that the first people had appeared in the form of birds and animals who thought, spoke, and behaved as human beings. They dreamed the names of their 22 clans and all their powers of governance and healing, including the songs that cured illness and more than 300 bird songs sung in sequence that described the path of the ancestors and mapped exactly how to survive in the desert. For my father, his partners, and the family, the ranch was a place of struggle and strife, a place to try to make money, the place that shattered the family and became the central challenge of my father's life in the struggle to redeem himself in the eyes of his father and his siblings and to prove that mechanized farming could conquer world hunger. On the other side of the river, Mojave tradition held that information and skill were ineffectual unless they were dreamed. All noteworthy success in life was obtained through dreaming. The great dreams occurred in utero. At birth, the dream was forgotten, then dreamed again in adolescence. During a girl's first menstruation, a warm pit was prepared for her to sleep in so she could dream. These dreams were understood as omens of the future. Song cycles containing instructions, prophecies, and origin lore were dreamed by singers. There were 30 cycles, each with as many as 200 songs recounting the tribe's great stories. In the early 2000s, the California Department of Fish and Game decided they wanted to buy what was left of the ranch and turn it into a wetlands preserve. Developers from Arizona wanted it too, 
They promised quick money and a chock-a-block retirement community of mobile homes. My arguments in favor of fish and game weren't having much effect. So on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I gathered with seven women on the banks of the river in the middle of the ranch to make offerings on behalf of that place. My grandmother had told me in a dream to come thank the water. The following morning, I was to meet my parents to decide on the fate of the land. I made a feast and brought my grandmother's fine china to serve it on. I brought silver candlesticks, loaves of bread, and the wooden owl that my grandmother had carved out of a solid chunk of walnut. It perched on the white tablecloth that we spread on the ground. This was to be a Thanksgiving tashlich, and it was important to do it upright. Tashlich is a ceremony that is usually performed at Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which takes place in the fall. During this time, one apologizes for wrongdoing in hopes of being inscribed in the Book of Life for another year. For Tashlich, one goes to a body of water and tosses in pieces of bread that carry our regrets and our prayers. We cast the regrets upon the water and ask that they return as blessings. I asked that the hearts of my parents, whose decision would determine the future of the place, be softened toward the possibility of repairing the river so that it could once again flow towards Mexico, untroubled along this stretch. I ask that it become a place of refuge where the birds, animals, and reptiles that once were plentiful could repopulate in protected exuberance. I apologized for Hoover Dam because it had cost the river her freedom and dozens of workmen their lives and the people and land and animals of the United States and Mexico the water they had relied on for centuries. To the river I said thank you for the inner two brides when my ex-husband and I were first married. We'd smoke a fat joint jump in the water, and float all day, towing six packs of beer with a rope. I thanked the burrowing owls for teaching us how to spot them as they peeked up from their nests in the ground. And I thanked the barn owl who flew close at twilight and grazed the top of my head with the tip of his wing. How must it have felt to the land? to host our feast that night of women and offerings. What must it have been for the river to receive that bread and those prayers after 60 years of enduring the violence of my family's dream? In the morning, I met my parents at the park. Well, said my father, 
We had a lovely picnic, I told him. We blessed the land and the river and said thank you. Fifteen minutes later, my parents agreed that the ranch should be sold. Department of Fish and Game. You have been listening to Lisa Weil, editor of the online journal Dark Matter Women Witnessing, in conversation with authors from its current issue, Dead and Alive, Being with Ancestors, Part 3. You've also been listening to Cynthia Travis read from her essay, River of Kin, which will be in her forthcoming book, Atlas of Sorrow, a Natural History of Empire and Family. Please join us on April 17th to continue the conversation in our next episode of Dead and Alive, Being with Ancestors. Visit writersradio.ca to follow this series listen to podcasts of previous episodes, and sign up for our program announcement newsletter. My thanks to contributors to this episode, to my fellow producers Ingrid Rose and Gary Sill, and thanks to you, dear listener. You have been listening to Writers Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. These stories, essays, and conversations revisit the long tradition of oral storytelling that connects us to the inspiration behind the words. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Traditional tribal land of the Shishal Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. We express our gratitude for their wisdom teachings and land stewardship. Mm-hmm.